What is the difference between mental illness and healthy mental functioning? For some conditions, the criteria is clear, but for others, the line between normal and abnormal is harder to define. For example, rates of ADHD in children have skyrocketed in the last few years. However, recent studies suggest that birth month is correlated with ADHD diagnosis. Why would the month you were born relate to a diagnosis of ADHD? Well, it turns out students who are born in December, who are the youngest in their grade, are almost twice as likely to get a diagnosis compared to the oldest children. If these findings hold true, we may be treating and medicating children simply because they are less mature. But how are these diagnostic criteria determined? And who is responsible for defining them? Today we are talking about diagnostic inflation in psychiatry. The idea that small changes to diagnostic criteria have led to large increases in the rates of mental illness. Supporters of this idea believe that it has potentially led us to classify some normal human states as mental illness. You're listening to the Hashtag Health Podcast, which is generously funded by the University Students Council at Western University and the Canadian Federation of Medical Students. Please note that the content of this podcast in no way constitutes medical advice. For any health-related concerns, please contact your physician. Today we are joined by Dr. Javid Sukera. My name is Dr. Javid Sukera. I'm a child psychiatrist, so I work primarily with the clinical population of, from birth to the age of 25, doing general outpatient mental health, as well as working in our pediatric chronic pain program and a little bit of transcultural psychiatry. In addition to that, I'm also a researcher, and the focus of my research looks at the issue of implicit bias, but also more broadly at issues related to equity diversity and inclusion uh, and how they impact us in teaching and learning in healthcare. We asked Dr. Sakara about his opinion on diagnostic inflation in psychiatry and what he sees in his clinical population. So I can tell you what my thoughts are about how that term resonates with me. I think what the concerns I have about the idea of diagnostic inflation really is creeping pathologization of normal human states of suffering. So for example, uh, we see more and more in my clinical population individuals who come in believing that they have significant mental illness or significant uh, psychiatric syndromes when what they describe is, uh, to an extent, suffering that's within the realm of what I would call normal. That's a problem because it doesn't mean that people don't need help, but the degree to which it might be what we define as a medical disorder can be very, very problematic on both ends of the continuum. On one end, we really want to be inclusive and mental illness and addictions issues are often delegitimized within our healthcare system. So I don't mean at all to say that we shouldn't be helping people who are suffering. But on the other end of the continuum, the degrees to which we might be, for example, prescribing medications are alarmingly high when it comes to things that are, again, part of uh, an adjustment or a, a normal human response to significant adversity. But how do psychiatrists and psychologists determine if an individual has a psychiatric condition? You may have heard of the DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders. Often referred to as the Psychiatry Bible, the DSM is a handbook used by mental health professionals that outlines criteria for diagnosis. The DSM is updated periodically by the American Psychiatric Association, the APA, 
to reflect our changing understanding of these conditions and is currently on its fifth revision since it was first published in 1952. While a universal diagnosis system is undeniably needed in psychiatry, the DSM has received a lot of criticism. Some experts believe the criteria pathologize normal emotions and question whether the diagnostic criteria are backed by research. Just this summer, a paper published in Psychiatry Research concluded that, quote, psychiatric diagnoses are scientifically meaningless as tools to identify discrete mental health disorders. Their study claims that the diagnostic criteria are inconsistent and result in a huge amount of overlap between different conditions. Further, the authors argue that the impact of trauma is not addressed, and that based on DSM descriptions, distress is thought to be the result of disorder rather than experience and trauma. Yeah, so I would say that, that I agree and disagree. The DSM-5, the APA did as best as they could to distill what was available. And they were very clear that this is no longer going to be or should be definitive document, that it should be a living and working document. But at the same time, it's always problematic when a group of people who deem themselves experts begin to define and redefine what illness means. Why I think that's a, a problem is because that definition really is and should be at a subjective level and uh, within health systems that definition should take into account morbidity mortality and I guess cost to society as well as to the individual at the end of the day the way that I approach my practice is less about the DSM and much more about categorizing and formulating an explanation for why someone's suffering with a problem. And that explanation is rarely ever a series of checkboxes and arbitrary diagnostic criteria. That explanation for the people I work with is a lot more about not only the symptoms they're having, but where those symptoms are in the context of that person's life, how things like the social determinants of health might affect those symptoms, but also developmentally where and when those symptoms are happening within their life. Are they happening at the transition to high school? Are they happening before they're uh, to go off to, to be independent in post-secondary? That plays a big role and is a, a layer of nuance that is in no way really captured by the categorical checkboxes of the DSM. Clearly, life circumstances should be taken into account when differentiating normal versus pathological mental health. But what is normal? Is there a concrete way to draw a line between pathology and normalcy? No, I think the line is is and always will be drawn, but that line needs to be drawn at an individuated level between physicians or clinicians and the patient. For groups to draw those lines, we live in an era where things are rapidly shifting and that simple process of collecting panels of people and developing and establishing these types of criteria, it really isn't in line with modern society where things are shifting and being shaken up all the time, right? Like, let's think about the Me Too movement. In what time span has all of a sudden this social movement captured something that's been hidden so long in society? Was the DSM written in a way to be calibrated for social movements that may come and go? And then tomorrow it might be another social movement or another hashtag. I think the era that we're living in now, with knowledge being as democratized as it is, 
uh, and expertise being completely deconstructed from what it once was. It's almost like we're in a post-expertise era, right? So the idea of a group of experts sitting around a table deciding what is and isn't or what does and doesn't qualify for a particular label isn't in line with a future where deciding or determining what does or doesn't qualify is really something that happens dialogically between an individual and the health professional that they're working with. Together, based on science, based on knowledge, there can be a conversation about where and what requires intervention versus where and what is normal versus isn't normal. Diagnostic inflation is one theory for the raising rates of mental illness, but what else is at play? Are the rates of mental illness really increasing, and if so, what are the contributing factors that could explain the increase in diagnoses? So it's really interesting. In April, the Canadian Journal of Psychiatry put out a series of articles based on the Ontario Child Health Study. There was a 30-year study, and they looked at the data from 2014 in that study. What's fascinating was the overall prevalence of mental illness hadn't actually changed, but a few key areas were different. So for example, there was a vast increase in the number of young boys diagnosed with ADHD. I believe that's twofold. One piece of it is earlier recognition of ADHD and destigmatization of ADHD, but I think that there's also a big push for, from a pharmacological perspective. The other trend was there's a decrease in kids diagnosed with conduct disorders, which I thought was fascinating. And then the one that we see all the time is that there's an increase in mood and anxiety disorders in teens. That's definitely something I see at a clinical level. And I think what we miss out on uh, are opportunities for early intervention. So we see people at their worst states when they crash into the system because they don't have access to care when things begin brewing. There's also decreasing stigma. So people are reaching out and asking for help. But I'm not sure that that stigma is decreased enough at the early stages of one's illness, where I still see a lot of teens and young people at the very early stages being very afraid to ask for help, being very afraid of, of being judged for that uh, and they don't get help early so they end up needing help later but then they are asking for help more so than before. It's complex. I don't think there's one thing I would say is or isn't what's contributing. The other thing uh, related to the anxiety and, and depression piece that I think is contributing is the level of social comparisons that are happening because of social media. What I would call a digital dependence has decreased many young people's uh, capacity to cope with adversity because they're living in a virtual world. Oh, I think the trends are, are showing that that increase will continue. Of course, we all hope that it won't. But in order for us to address that, we really need to address early intervention as early as possible in life. So if we think about, again, the impact of, of mobile devices and social media and how they've affected our ability to be present with one another, we know that when a baby's attaching to their parent in the first six months of life, that parent's ability to be present emotionally is a huge impact on the emotional well-being of that child for the rest of their life. I look now at the generation of parents, even my own generation, where perfectionism is so rampant in society. And anybody who's had kids knows that, you know, there's no such thing as a perfect birth or a perfect childhood. It's messy and you just accept it. All that has to happen as early as possible for us to reverse this trend. If we don't do something as early, at the earliest stages of life, then what we're risking is just making it worse over time. So there you have it. Dr. Sakara says the increase in mood disorders may be attributed to increased social comparison and decreased stigma, and that early intervention is one of the most important aspects to prevention and mental health care. 
Dr. Sakara also mentions that psychiatric diagnosis should not be about ticking boxes of the DSM criteria, and rather should involve an approach that takes into account the individual's life experiences and what their normal health looks like. So what does the future have in store for psychiatry in the DSM? As our knowledge of mental health progresses, the way disorders are defined and diagnosed has and will continue to change. But some people are calling for an abandonment of the DSM completely. Other diagnostic systems have been suggested, such as the Research Domain Criteria, or RDOC, developed by the National Institute of Mental Health. The RDOC is based on neurobiology and observable behavior, rather than the signs and symptoms approach of the DSM. This approach would incorporate genetic, neuroscience, and cognitive science domains to more accurately distinguish discrete mental health conditions. It uses statistical techniques to identify clusters of disorders independent of DSM diagnosis, which may lead to greater biological validity. While much more research is needed before we abandon the DSM, this type of research offers a framework and a hope for a future with a better understanding of mental illness. Thanks again for tuning into this week's episode of Hashtag Health. Feel free to reach out to us on Facebook or Instagram at Hashtag Health Podcast if you have any questions, thoughts, or feedback. Be sure to subscribe to the Hashtag Health Podcast to be the first to know about new episodes. See you next week. This episode was written and produced by Mary Noyan and me, your host, Julia Sundstrom.